Hi, you guys, this is Michael DeBar, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. That's ridiculous. Paul loves talking about the Beatles. And I said, what's up with that? And she said, that's crazy. So I said, really? I'm going to test this theory. You know, being a young, ballsy kid in my 20s, you know? So I started playing... Please, please me. I went, and Jeff went, and and Paul looked up at us like surprised. And then he started singing. And then everybody jumped in. Today's guest is a bona fide rock star, and he has plenty of Beatles stories to tell. Steve Lukather is best known as the lead guitarist for Toto, the band behind such enduring hit songs as Hold the Line, 99, Rosanna, Africa, and I Won't Hold You Back. At just 19 years old, Lukather joined the Picaro brothers in founding the group Toto in the mid-1970s. A gifted, self-taught guitarist, Lukather established his name as a top-flight studio musician during that same period, playing on records by such luminaries as Leo Sayer, Boz Skaggs, Alice Cooper, Barbara Streisand, The Pointer Sisters, Cher, and Cheap Trick. Over the years, he has performed as a session guitarist, quite literally, on more than 2,000 tracks. He has been nominated for 12 Grammy Awards, taking home five of the coveted statuettes. Since 2012, Lukather has toured with former Beatles drummer Ringo Starr's live supergroup, The All-Star Band. Lukather recently released a new single, Run To Me, featuring Ringo on the drums and Toto lead vocalist Joseph Williams. Welcome, Steve Lukather. Well, okay. Thank you very much. I'm very deeply honored to be a part of this. Well, we are absolutely thrilled to have you as our inaugural guest. It's a great honor for me, and it's almost weirdly Twilight zone in the most wonderful ways, cause, because the, what changed my life was seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and now Ringo is a very dear friend of mine. I've had the great honor of working with Paul, and George was a friend of mine as well. And he even played with a, sh- a show with us uh, as a tribute to Jeff Picard, our late drummer, which was magic. And then we hung out a bunch. And, you know, I've had a, a wonderful experiences with uh, the three guys. Uh, but, but really, Ringo and I are close friends. And I cherish that relationship probably more than any at this point because he's been more than just a fellow musician hero of mine. But he's also become a dear friend and somebody I look up to and you know he's just the best you know what can i say you know 
He's the coolest guy I've ever been friends with. You know what I mean? And I have a lot of cool friends. Can you tell us about your Beatles origin story? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, anybody my age that's a musician has the same story. It's like, for me, it's like life went to black and white to color. You know what I mean? It's like the Wizard of Oz. There was life pre-Beatles and then post-Beatles. Nothing was ever the same. I've been in a, I was in a band when I was nine. You know what I mean? And I never stopped. I mean, and then as exponentially as everything went on, I mean, I was a Beatles freak and then the whole British invasion and, you know, then there's the Beck Page Clapton years. I mean, you know, I mean, I followed everything as it came out. Jimi Hendrix and all, you know, that was, I was like 11 in a band making money. You know what I mean? I'm trying to play and I actually play some of this stuff, which at the time was really weird. Now there's like a, you know, like a two-year-old that plays like Stevie Ray Vaughan or something like that. You know what I mean? They all start out shredding, you know, it's like there was, I was, there wasn't very many of me around, you know what I mean? So I was stuck out. I found a couple guys that could play, you know what I mean? And, um, and you know, once you get the bug, you know, you see the Beatles. I mean, my grandmother used to take me to see Hard Day's Night. I don't know, I've seen it 40 times, you know what I mean? When I had to pay to get into the theater. All I could, I mean, it was like this, I wanted so much to be a part of what that was, that whole movement and just the music, the music just got into my soul. I was a little single digit kid. So it wasn't a, a money or a sexual thing at all. It was just the music hit my soul. And I said, I gotta, I gotta learn how to do that and make that noise. You know what I mean? And that was a, an eternal quest. I never thought, I mean, what are the mathematical odds of a little kid in North Hollywood seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan all of a sudden playing on the 50th anniversary of that show with Paul and Ringo and, uh, and this all-star band and there's all these all, all these wonderful artists, some of which I knew and worked with and some I were friends or people that I admired. And it kind of hit me when we were going on stage there. I see, I see you know, uh, we had rehearsed all week long. It was real business. You didn't have time to take in how important, how bizarre it was that I was there. And Ringo asked me to be a part of the all-star band. Me and Peter Frampton is also a giant and a dear friend. I mean, that was it was a kick for me, man. I, just, I looked up and I saw the, right before we're going on stage to do the show, I look up and I see the Hard Day's Nights playing and it all of a sudden hit me. Really, kind of hard. I didn't say anything and, it, and, and I just played the gig, but it hit me. So I'm like, well, are you serious? I'm actually here doing this with you like 50 years later? That's pretty insane. It's, and what are the odds? How many zeros does that? The kid from the ends up there. Those odds must have been absolutely off the charts. Well, out of 7 billion people, you know. <laughs> Those are, that's an extraordinary amount of zeros. But, you know, here's the thing. I had this kid, and this is like goes out to anybody who has a passion for anything. And music was my passion. Obviously, you talk to anybody in my age group, give or take 10 years or so, they're going to tell you the same thing. The Beatles changed everything and, you know, it changed the world, not just music. Tell us what it's like working with Ringo. Ringo's still that guy. You know what I mean? He's still a great drummer. He just worked on this new single. You know what I mean? What a great gift that was to me. I mean, I, and I just worked on something for him on Monday. We're writing something together again. And all I can say is like, this, it's almost like a bizarre dream I don't want to wake up from, you know, but I, it's actually reality. And I don't take it for granted. I And, you know, as good of friends as me and Ringo have become, he's still Ringo, you know what I mean? But at the same time, he's still the most wonderful cat in the world. If his name was, you know, Bob Jones, he, I would want to be around him. You know, I even asked him, I said, hey, man, is it cool if I do this show? Because I would never want to take advantage of 
just because we're friends. You know what I mean? And he said, yeah, please go ahead and do it. But thanks for asking. Can you tell us about working with George? Well, we jammed. You know, he played with us uh, at the Jeff Beccaro tribute in 1992 after my brother passed away. And I had met him just a few days before. And I said, hey, man, you know, I just wanted to meet the guy that's the reason why I play guitar. You know, that's I wanted to make the sounds George made on this lead guitar. I must have played the solo if I saw her standing there a billion times until it drove my parents crazy just to hear that sound of his solo. And I got a chance to tell him that. And then he invited me and then he took a shine to me a little bit and we started hanging out a bunch and he took me to a out for dinner and there's Bob Dylan and you know, we went to Jeff Lynn's house and played a little bit, you know what I mean? With, uh, that was bizarre and wonderful. I mean, and Jeff's a wonderful cat, man, another hero of mine who we've become friendly, you know? And, um, all I can say is I found myself in this world, like pinch myself. And I have to thank my brother, Greg Bissonette for, uh, our, you know, the drummer in the all-star with Ringo, uh, one of my old dear friends for even getting me involved in this whole thing. Can you tell us about picking up the guitar and becoming a self-taught guitarist? Once I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan and any other time they were on the Ed Sullivan show, it became an obsession. I wanted anything Beatles. I wanted to read about it. I played the, you know, my parents bought me a guitar and meet the Beatles for my seventh birthday, you know? Or eighth birthday, it was either seven or eight, I forget, man. I'm starting to lose it now as an old bad. Uh, but, you know, it just, I wanted to play this thing. And it was, I still have that guitar. It's a lamp now. My parents gave made it into a lamp and gave it to me on my 21st birthday. So, Steve in 1964. So it was 1964. Uh, and I struggled with this thing, you know. And before I was born, my my mother was 19 when she had me. So this was the like the late 50s, you know, I was born in 57. So it would have been like, you know, early 57, late 56 when the, my grandmother had these psychic friends. Now, back then, you're like considered a witch and shit, you know, my mother, my grandmother was new age before there was a, a name for it. You know what I mean? She believed she was a very spiritual person. I learned a lot of that from her. And I she really helped guide me a lot when I was a kid. But, you know, uh, one of her friends was a psychic, put her hand on my mother's pregnant stomach and said it's a boy and i hear a lot of music around him and the world's gonna know who this guy is and my mother was really bummed out she's gone, my son's gonna be a musician are you serious it's like back then it had a different connotation you know they imagine jazz musicians that are all junkies and shit you know because rock and roll had yet to occur really elvis was around but and my mom was young and she listened to popular music you know that was her music so when i grew up i was you know turned the radio was on it was always on the top 40 stations and I grew up with that music, you know, the, the, that 60s music, you know, from, I, I mean, I was exposed to it once I was born in 1957, 58, 59, 60. By the time the Beatles came, I was keenly aware of, I was, I liked music, but I didn't really, it, it, nothing knocked me off my chair like the Beatles. And I feel, it, it, they knocked the world on its ass. And today, still today, the music holds up. I mean, it's still great records, great songs, like the best songs ever for me. I mean, you know, Lennon McCartney, man, that's all I got to say. And George, and George too, man. I mean, the the music that they wrote. And, and you know, Ringo's the only drummer, if you solo his drum part, you'll know what song it is because his, his drumming is so creative. It wasn't about, oh, you know, dig how fast I am. That was never, it was always to serve the song. He had the best time ever. There was no click tracks back then. It was all live, man. 
And anybody that would dare bag on Ringo will have to go through me first. It is strange how low these many years later people would deign to criticize Ringo's drumming. Well, I think that it's kind of like trendy for hipsters to bag on him, not realizing how much he brought to the party. Who would have thought to play that riot, that 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 part in Ticket to Ride? Who would have thought to play that part on Come Together? Who would have played that part? There's so many, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows. I could go on, you know, the Sgt. Pepper stuff. I mean, the drums really came to the forefront. He was the first drummer to bring the drum sound and, and legendary tasteful fills that still every drummer, Jeff Picaro, our original drummer and one of the greatest drummers of all in my life, Ringo was his favorite drummer, you know, the rock drummer. You know, his dad was a famous uh, jazz drummer. And so there was jazz in their life. But when the Beatles hit, it hit them just as much as it hit me. You know, we were all walking around with the, you know, <laughs> tennis rackets in our hand and a little beetle wig. I mean, it was like I was a little kid, you know, and this thing just knocked. I mean, it was like I was obsessed. I didn't care. I was shitty in sports. I was bullied as a kid. So, I mean, this was like, you know, all of a sudden one day I'm sitting struggling with this thing on my front porch and my hands all of a sudden went into the first position chords that nobody ever showed me. It was bizarro. Must have been some past life shit or I don't know. It was freaky and it scared me, but I wouldn't stop. All of a sudden everything my right hand technique and I could play the basic chords and I started to play with some sort of a rhythm and I sort of ran in the house going, look, I can play. And now nobody will believe this in a million years, but that's really what happened. Then I, then I went to a music teacher or a guitar teacher that told me that I'd never really get it. You know what I mean? Or I'm doing it all wrong. I've had a few people tell me that I was playing wrong. You know, tell that to Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, you're playing it wrong. It's amazing, but you're playing it wrong. You know what I mean? It's like there's no wrong way to play if you're making music. It was, what, uh, another seven years or so, and you decided to go formal and start taking lessons, right? My father said, if you're going to take this serious, if you're really going to do this, because he thought I was out of my mind back then saying, I'm going to be, <laughs> I want to be like the Beatles. I mean, what is an innocent little kid thing, dumb shit thing to say. But, you know, in my heart, I was young. I was innocent. I was, I said, I just want to make music like that. I want to do that for a living. And my father, who was an assistant director for film and television, he was like, dude, you got, a, you know, a billion chance of making it. And I said, I'm that guy. And he laughed and patted me on the head and says, well, you might want to think about something else to fall back on, kid. And when I was 14, you know, I was still really dead serious, playing in bands and all this stuff, you know, really excited about music, practicing. He says, uh... Well, if you're really going to do this, then you really need to learn how to read music and get all this stuff together. And I said, okay. So he turned me on to my first teacher, Jimmy Weibel. And then I met the Picaro brothers. I met Steve Picaro in 10th grade. And then I met his family. And that changed my life because I realized what I found out what studio musicians were all about. And Jeff Picaro was already a legend in Steely Dan when I was in high school. Me and Michael Landau were the guitar players and Carlos Vega and John Pierce on bass and Steve Picaro on keyboard. That was our high school band. And Jeff and David Page would come sit in with us. You know, Jeff was in Steely Dan at the time. We were basically a Steely tribute band at that point, playing Beatles stuff even back then. But, you know, as time went on, you know, we got older and I realized I immersed myself in studies. Like I studied orchestration and, and I went to the Dick Grove School of Music for improvisation and sight reading. And I studied harmony and theory, piano, all this stuff. I started within a four-year period. That was where I gained all my knowledge. And the next thing you know, I was uh, doing demos. That that had to have been enormously important to your your career as a session man, right? 
I had to have the tools, man. You know, I wasn't the greatest reader. I wasn't like Tommy Tedesco sight reading two part invention classical music, but I could read and get through all the record date stuff, you know. Uh, I did a couple of scary TV film dates where the reading was intense, but I got through it by the grace of God. And uh, I just, you know, I'm just, I was the guy that would make up my own parts and come up with hooky parts for songs. And that's what got me the work and was able to do a solo in one or two takes because there was only 24 tracks back then. They didn't have, you couldn't take a hundred passes at it. You know, you had to be on it. You had to give it to him right away. So I was, you know, I had a lot of mentors like Jay Graydon and Lee Rittenauer and Larry Carlton and, and, you know, Ray Parker Jr. And all the people that I would sit next, Dean Parks, legendary guitar players that taught me. And I, I, I learned from them. And I, to this day, I owe a lot to them. And I still respect, you know, I respect what came before me. You know what I mean? But I'm a big fan of all sorts of music, but it all begins with the Beatles. And we'll hear more from Steve Lukather and everything Fab Four after this message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with Steve Lukather. So tell me, Steve, if you had to pick one Beatles song or even one Beatles album. You're not going to ask me what my favorite Beatles song is, are you? Well, you caught me. That's exactly where I'm going. Well, I'm going to say the first one because that's the one that changed my life. Meet the Beatles. That was the on switch to my life. Everything they ever did, I love. Everything worked. You know, you listen to the album as a whole. You know what I mean? That was the thing. Is You didn't just pick a... I, I bought singles, too, of course. Well, it was truly an obsession. And, of course, by this point, you're a guitarist in your own right. I, you know, I mean, by the time I got into high school, I was paying my sister to do my homework and, and term papers and stuff like that. And I was working and, and, and practicing and, you know, just immersed in what I... Because my mom wasn't going to let me drop out of high school. I don't want to have a high school drop out. I'm going, Mom, look, I'm already working. Come on. And uh, she says, I want you to pass. I don't care how you do it. So I figured out a way. <laughs> I shouldn't say this because I'm like giving people... I, I, I'll tell you how I did it. You know, remember the Iowa test? You bet those standardized tests that we sort of all had to take. It was a placement test to see how smart you were to put you in the right proper class. You know, you, this is what level math you're at. This is what level English, blah, blah, blah. Well, in high school, I purposely failed the test. So I'd end up in the dummy class so I could cut school and show up on Friday, ace the test, and I get a C. Pass. The teachers would like, be looking at me like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> I go, I'm sorry, I'm studying music real hard, and, uh, you know, I, 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 this is my life, you know what I mean? They're just looking at me like, well, they couldn't really bust me because I was doing, I mean, you know, they could arguably bust me for truancy, but I was passing the classes, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. Well, it gets better. You know, the emergency cards is how they tested your, um, or they look to see if the signature matches your mom and dad. Well, I had my friend sign that so that every time I cut school, he could sign me a note. And I had my own phone, 
because my father was in the uh, assistant director for television and film, and that was his work line in the house. So they finally, when I started getting all these work calls, he said, look, I'll give you your own phone. As soon as you start making any money, you owe me. So what I do, I just unplug my phone. So I use my phone number as the phone to call home and see if I was actually there or not, if I was actually sick. So I worked the whole scam. But I was studying music, so I was studying. I just wasn't studying, you know, bullshit history and all the rest of the stuff. You know, I got through junior high school. I figured out, you know, that's about as all I needed. You know, high school was just, I already, was already set. I knew what I wanted to do. That was it. I, I blinked and 45 years went by. Here I am going, wow. So I've asked about that uh, favorite Beatles album. If you had to, if you were stuck on a desert island, what would be your Beatles song that we, you would take with you? Being stuck on a desert island, I don't think I'm going to be worried about music at that point. I think it'd be food and get me the fuck off this island. Well, those Beatles songs would be another kind of sustenance. Musically, I'd be singing all of them in my head. I, I can't. It's impossible for me to pick one, man. And I just say that it starts with the first and exponentially goes to the last. You could, I mean, Sgt. Pepper's one of the most genius albums of all time. If the, probably the. You know, I don't think, you know, you can arguably say there's been better records than that, but I think there wouldn't have been these experimental records had it not been for that record. You know what I mean? That opened the door to production and weird sounds and trying to use the studio as an instrument as opposed to just a place to turn on the red light and record. You know what I mean? You could, the experimentation, we always, you know, you use the term, I, I want, I, I'm looking for a Beatley sort of a thing. And that's an adjective that engineers and other producers understand. They all of a sudden, all of us go, what would they do? And knowing, reading about how they did a couple of tricks on this and how they got these sounds, I would take that in the studio and go, I want to try that. Can we do that? And, and then, you know, I, I'll never be George Harrison or John Lennon or Paul. Or... Well, like Lennon and McCartney, you started pretty young as a songwriter and a performer, right? I remember you at a recent... Uh, maybe a few years back at one of the all-star band concerts talking about playing the song hold the line when you were 19. <laughs> it's funny because David Page wrote the song. You know, I'm a very, I'm a very sarcastic bastard and I have w wicked sense of humor, <clears throat> but uh, you know, so I just goof around, man played. I did play hold the line when I was 19 years old. That was when we were doing our first album. I was 19. I turned 20 in the middle of it. You know? Well, coming out of the gate with a song like Hold the Line is big time. I mean, that thing really stands up and it holds up very, very well today. Wow, that's very kind of you to say that. I mean, I'm proud of most of it. Some of the earlier albums had some pretty cheesy lyrics, but we were just kids, man. <laughs> well, fair enough. But I got to tell you, my 87-year-old father still loves listening to 99 from the Hydra album, which I understand you've rethought in recent years. Nah, you know, that's, you know, that's funny. You say something off the cuff and it follows you around, you know, thanks to the internet, you know. It's a silly little song lyrically, but it's a great track, you know, but it, all David meant with it was like that people have names, not numbers, like George Lucas's THX, but except 99 was also Get Smart, you know. When I was a kid, I was certain that 99 must be about Barbara Feldon. <laughs> nah, man, dude, she, she was hot back in the day, but, you know, I mean, no, this Dave wrote that song and he wanted me to sing it, you know. Early on, he would pick a song for me to sing, you know, and I was pretty young and malleable. And I still looked at David Page as, you know, he taught me everything I know about making records, him and Jeff. So tell us about getting the call to be a member of Ringo Starr's all-star band. I wanted to be in this band real bad. You know what I mean? It's one of those last things, you know, you get all the, well, what haven't you done that you'd like to do? And because of Greg Bissonette, 
bringing Dave Hart, the his uh, Ringo's agent and uh, guy who scouts talent for future uh, all star bands. Uh, I was in Paris playing with Toto when we were headlining a gig there. He brought Dave to see me play, and then said. Greg knew that I want. I said, God, I got to get into this band, man. And he, and he had put a good word in for me a couple of times, you know, but you know, it finally got to me and Dave Hart saw me play. He said, oh no, this guy would be great. I got the call and I was like the most exciting thing in the world to me. I go, this is like, I told the guys, the band, look, I got to take a couple, I got to take seven, eight weeks to myself for the first time ever. I got this opportunity. And of course the guys were like, cool with it. Cause it was Ringo. You know what I mean? It, it actually helped our career. My affiliation with that people go, who was that guitar player guy? And they hear the song and go, oh, that's that guy. When did you first uh, get a shot at working with Paul McCartney? So, you know, I worked with Paul at first on the Thriller album with Michael Jackson. We did the, the Girl Is Mine. And then he invited Jeff Picard and I to come over and be in the, the Broad Street film, which was a ridiculously cool experience to hang out with him. Linda, who was wonderful. Gosh, she was nice. I was on a stand with her. I mean, we we're doing this film for two weeks and I was on the same riser as her. So we got to be friendly, you know, and she was just the nicest, most wonderful person. That would have been for the uh, uh, the remake of Silly Love Songs for the Broad Street film. Getting to work with Linda, too, must have been a kick, right? I don't, I don't get the whole bad rap. I mean, I mean, people would say back in the day you know it's like that was so disrespectful and they didn't know the woman and she was just so cool and they didn't have any nannies around i mean i just i see the biggest star in the world and seeing how he handles himself and i've seen a lot of immature you know one hit wonders with an attitude you know what i mean it's like i'm going sorry cats you guys ain't even in the same room with how hip this is you know so how did the the new song run to me come about myself joseph williams and david page from total Got together, right? I mean, I was in the middle of my record, and I wanted to. It was Ringo's 80th birthday, and it was like uh, we got like, hey, send something in for Ringo. Maybe we'll put it on the channel for you know. So we quickly put together this track in a day, and I got him to play on it, which was one of the great honors of my life. And he played tambourine. It's the same tambourine that was on all the Beatles records. There's a certain sound, you know, just the way he plays and the way he feels it. I mean, there could be only one guy. Forget it. I mean, I know there's all these technically brilliant guys, but there's nobody like Ringo, man. I think the friendship is the most important thing to me because we live like 10 minutes from each other and we talk a lot, you know, and, and I respect him and I listen to his. He's got such great advice. Well, I hope folks will check out the song and especially the video, which you can see on YouTube. It's really uh, just a lot of fun. I mean, we made that video for no money in my backyard with one iPhone, okay? And Brent Carpenter, the legendary Brent Carpenter, who is Ringo's videographer, he also does a lot of television and film stuff. He's become a dear friend of all of ours, and he popped up and took film, and I was able to use that. Thank you, Brent Carpenter. You rule. And Ringo and Barbara allowed us up to the house to do that, you know, and I'm forever in debt for their friendship. I love them both so much. And my, you know, what can I say? I pinch myself that, uh, you know, when he calls, I think, you know, and somebody's in my house, it's just Ringo. It's like, they're going, you asshole, Ringo's calling you. It must have been tough to make the video during our ongoing pandemic. One of the few people that I've seen during this COVID nightmare, because, we, you know, I, I don't go anywhere and I suit up and make sure that I'm safe. I'm not going to be the guy that gets Ringo sick, you understand? I can't imagine anything worse than that. I would slit my throat with a box cutter first, okay?
Before we go, tell me tell me what it was like to uh, do those sessions when you were a hardworking session man on all those records. Well, we were doing like 25 sessions a week or something like that, you know, every day for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, you get to play on a lot of records. I mean, you can do a lot of records in a week. You know what I mean? If I just do sessions, if I'm doing a different session every day for different artists, I could get, you know, five or six albums a weekend. You know what I mean? As far as me playing on that album, I mean, I may not have done the whole album, but I was on it. Or I, if I did play on the whole album, you know, whatever. I mean, there was no particular rules back then to it, but it was all done live and on the spot with no rehearsals and no, sometimes no idea what style of music or who the artist was back in the day. And we created, I mean, I created all my own parts on the spot pretty much. I mean, I could read the notes if I had to, but they generally left me blank space because they knew I'd come up with something. That's why I got hired. When you're in these remarkable situations and you find yourself face-to-face with Ringo Starr or Paul McCartney, how do you separate being a musician from a fan? I had a chance when we were working on Broad Street, we had lunch every day with Paul, Linda, Jeff McCarl, myself, Paul, Linda, and Jeff Emmerich and George Martin. We were told when we got there, we shouldn't talk about the Beatles with Paul or anything. I'm going like, are you kidding me? Really? We can't talk about any of this or don't play any of the music or anything like that. So I'm sitting on the stand after about two days with, with, uh, Linda, you know, we had all this makeup and crazy stuff on, which we didn't know we were going to be wearing until we got there. But anything for Paul McCartney, I'll tell you that. So I'm I'm talking to Linda, and we started to get a little bit more friendly. And she was wonderful. She was just so great. She had a Mellotron sitting in front of her, the same one I think that was on Strawberry Fields or something like that. You know, and I was was talking to her about it. I said, yeah, man, well, they told us that we weren't allowed to ask Paul anything about the Beatles. She goes, who told you that? I go, well, the manager guy told me, blah, blah, blah. She goes, that's ridiculous. Paul loves talking about the Beatles. And I said, what's up with that? And she said, that's crazy. So I said, really? I'm going to test this theory. You know, being a young, ballsy kid in my 20s, you know. So I started playing Please Please Me. I went, da, 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 da. And Jeff went, flat. And, and Paul looked up at us like surprised. And then he started singing. And then... Everybody jumped in, you know, and at the end of it, like all the crew stopped and I was watching. And at the end of it, the whole place erupted into, you know, you know, applause and screaming and all this stuff. And Paul goes, well, he goes back when me and the lads and then it, and then it was on. Then it was like I looked at her and I go, is it cool to talk now? She goes, yes. And and then when he wasn't looking. I, I reached over to the Mellotron and I started and I and I go, dare I? And I played the intro of Strawberry Fields and he looked up and he went, wow, that's pretty good. And Lynn was laughing. Everybody was laughing. I go, I'm sorry, I had to. I had to. <clears throat> and then when we'd have lunch, then all of a sudden I was able to ask, so how did you get the sound on Jeff? How did you get that guitar sound on this? And then they'd all start talking about it. I was like a fly on the wall in the room. You'd also worked with him um, several years earlier on the Thriller album with Quincy Jones. For the first time, Paul walked into the room. And we saw him. It was like it was the first time we saw like one of the Beatles. And, and we were in our early 20s and stuff. You know, we're like going like, wow, that's Paul McCartney. And then, you know, Jeff lit up a joint, you know, and then we're like, and, and Paul walking around with Paul goes, I smell musicians. <laughs> we They were setting up headphones. And once everything got together, we started jamming. I was made to love her by Stevie Wonder. 
and Paul, Paul and Michael were singing live and we jumped in and played this thing. I don't, I think it exists. I don't know if I bet you Quincy has it somewhere, but he recorded everything, but uh, it was loose and fun, but it was like, we were just, I, I, I think my face was going to crack off. You know, I was smiling as they say in the South, I was smiling like a mule eating briars. <laughs> well, you know, people are going to get, I know a great kick out of hearing your stories um, about not just working with uh, folks like Ringo and Paul as musicians, but also knowing them as friends. Those stories are really touching, and and thank you so much for sharing them today. By the way, Ringo programmed the Beatles channel in my car. I picked them up for dinner. We were going out for dinner one night. I'm showing off, man, check out my new ride. And he goes, hey, let me do something for you. This is my bad Ringo voice impression. And he, and, he, and he programmed in the Beatles channel for me. I've never touched it since. It's always on in my car. You know what, Steve? I don't think I'd change it either. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.